0: Accessing library computer data.
1: Out there, there are no saints. Just people.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. We're continuing our run through of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. We're up to the episode called The Die is It is the 21st episode of the third season, May 1st, 1995, was the air date, written by Ronald D. Moore, directed by David Livingston. In this episode, the Cardassian Romulan fleet enters the Gamma Quadrant, Cisco goes
1: against Starfleet orders to rescue Odo. We're joined by Clay. Clay, how are you? Good. This reminds me of that time that I had a burrito in the fridge, (laughs) and I was going to eat it, and I took a step back and I said, no, let's just see what the burrito does first. (laughs)
2: This is now the eighth episode in the row that the burrito has made its appearance into the
1: podcast. Darren, how are you? And it's tougher every time I encounter it.
0: I'm, I'm good. This reminds me of the occasion that I didn't have a burrito, but somebody else had a burrito and then somebody mugged them, took the burrito, and I had to watch them do it in slow motion despite the fact that I had nothing to do with the situation at all.
1: Serious, ignorant American question. Are there burritos in Ireland?
0: There are indeed. Um, they're very, very hipster over here. They're like donut really? shops. Really? Yeah, you can, t- you can tell. It's like one of the things. Like one of the markers, Again, not to get too specific, but Ireland <laughs> went through a bit of a recession, like everybody else around about 2008, but it was particularly severe. And you could tell that things were sort of coming back in the city because all of a sudden you had like five donut shops and two burrito bars uh, within every square kilometer. Like I literally <laughs> wow. cannot, I cannot walk from my uh, from my office. To the bus stop to get home without passing two burrito bars and like four donut shops. Um, it's it's quite the, stan- the,
1: the 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 nightmare of the conservative party over here. a Burrito stand on every corner. <laughs> <laughs> and like uh, sounds like heaven to me. After, I mean, yeah. <laughs> after walking
2: past all of these donut shops, uh, Darren is similar to an Aberntain and that he's lost his uh, his form fitting <laughs> suit or whatever, and is now just rotundly rolling down the hill.
1: I mean, but I retained
0: to s- my fashion sense, <laughs> Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> you don't really need to sell me on Ireland more than, like, yeah, you know, uh, y- everywhere I walk, it's just donut shops and burrito stands. I heard you I, clicking I, on kayak.com
2: over there, Clay, yeah. in the background, booking your next trip over. Anyway, let's talk about the Dice cast. We're going to take a break. I'm going to play an audio clip. And me, Darren, and Clay are going to come back. and we're going to break down the conclusion to this tain two parter of the Dice <laughs> cast.
1: What's the matter, Garrick? You don't look very happy. Enjoying yourself.
2: There is no pleasure in this for me, Constable, I assure you. I am simply doing my job. Your job? Yes. It's the job you've been waiting for all these years of exile. And here you are, interrogating a prisoner again. It must fill you with pride. Oh, don't just tell me what I need to know, and this will end. All right, so I left us off with our ratings for improbable cause, which I gave a five by saying that I'll clarify what I meant here going forward. Um, Clay, we've talked, or why I think the ratings are funny for this series in particular, as opposed to something like TNG. Mm -hmm. Clay, we've talked before in trying to, is there something about human perspective where if an episode is epic enough, people think it's great? Um, mm. And if something is very large in a very big story, do people just kind of have a predilection to saying that that was a great episode? It it some it happens a lot on TNG, and I don't know if it's just the great episodes seem more epic, or if it's an epic idea that lends itself to being perceived as great. But I like the Dies Cast. I don't think the Dies Cast is as strong a single episode as Improbable Causes, because there's a few things mm-hmm. about the Dies Cast that. I don't think the series does what this this episode is trying to do as well as it will in the future, and this is like a baby step for it. And where Improbable Cause was a pure character study that the show can do at this point, as long as the idea is strong, they can ace that, that world. These kind of action space opera epics are a little bit out of the show's wheelhouse at this point, and I think that the Dice cast has a few flaws in it, even though I really love the episode.
1: Yeah, I you know, the last episode I, I mentioned that it seemed like this was kind of an inversion of the way that they usually handle these two-parters, and I think one of the things that supports that idea for me is that this feels very much like, even though it's the second half, it feels very much like a setup episode. Um, in that it has, you know, the, it has the big space opera stuff, which is very much feels like a, a climax, but the stuff that's actually happening is really setting up stuff that's gonna come after it um and so it it's it's fascinating to me how if you were to flip them, it would feel more like the way they usually do it where you know it's kind of splashy at the front, set up a bunch of stuff and then the second one is a little bit smaller and it's a little bit more uh uh usually character driven uh if you know if or it's them figuring out how to get out of the writing problem they put themselves in with the first half yeah um. Which
2: never feels yeah, as I, satisfying. This is different because this feels like a satisfying escalation of improbable cause, as opposed to a yeah. fixing the solution, Like the, as opposed to the problem with Best of Both Worlds too, which is that it's like, oh, this kind of feels like a little bit of a letdown.
1: Yeah, and I think it. it it's the reason that it's one of the reasons it feels so satisfying is because they're not really trying to figure out how to wrap it up. You know, they're just kind of telling the story the, 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 the wrap up, the part that they are wrapping up is a continuation from the first half in that they have to get Odo back and uh, Garrick has a bunch of character stuff that they have to kind of work out with him and Tane and all that kind of stuff. They do wrap that stuff up, but they are not wrapping up the external uh, action at all. If anything, like I said, it's, it's a setup for what's going to come later. And I think that's really important, uh, in making these feel different from the way they usually do it. Cause uh, they always end up the second half. You got to wrap everything up. Uh, it always feels unsatisfying cause they got to figure some way to get Picard back on the ship from being a Borg or whatever. And you always kind of go, nah, yeah, I don't really know about that. And I think it's a it's a symptom of having to try and do everything at once, whereas these episodes allow them to focus in on very specific things and just let the other stuff play out. And even here, like I said, they're wrapping very specific things up, but the other stuff is just playing out. And I, I find that so much more satisfying than if they had to, like, like if this was TNG, this would have ended with uh, the Federation bombing in at the end and, like, blowing up all of the Hadar, and that would just be it. And it would just feel really like tacked on and like, well, they didn't really earn that, but they have to do that because next week we can't be dealing with the fallout of what happened in this episode. But since they, Deep Space Nine allows for that, um, it allows much smaller resolutions inside of a larger story, which is, which is very fun. And what's interesting about it too, is that I actually don't really like the stuff the, the, I think the Odo, not, not the Odo stuff, the Odo stuff is good. I think the, uh, much like, um, it, they still have problems in this episode that they've had in previous episodes that I've watched. Mainly, there is a B plot that involves people just on a ship going from point A to point B, and it's really not very satisfying. Um, cause I was watching this episode thinking like, man, I'm really into this, but th- the this whole everybody get on the Defiant and go find Odo thing feels really Frankly, unbelievable to me, because the Admiral just told them, yeah, um, the Cardassians and the Romulans are going to attack the Hadar. We don't know what's going to happen. We need you to get everybody who is non-essential off of Deep Space Nine and just be prepared for a possible giant fight. And Cisco's like, no, I think I'm going to take everyone who's important to this station (laughs) with me, leave, and go get one guy who, in the grand scheme of things... Not really important to everything that he just, that the Admiral just told me, but yep. it, that that stuff was kind of unbelievable to me, but uh, everything else I thought was great.
0: Have you seen uh, San Andreas, which has a very similar plot point where The Rock is a rescue worker working in California during the biggest earthquake on record, but mm-hmm. decides to take his search and rescue helicopter to go and get his daughter in the middle of this gigantic crisis?
1: right yeah
2: you're asking us if we have if we haven't seen san andreas (laughs) this is is a required viewing for americans uh no i I have not actually seen that although it sounds probably remarkably uh, similar to what would happen in the movie rampage starring the rock i would imagine
1: now i feel like that would be a one-to-one comparison if at the beginning of san andreas the rocks like uh supervisor was like hey you're a rescue worker we need you to go and stay by this building that's full of people and get everybody out of this building because the building might collapse and kill everybody around them. And he's like, "Okay, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just going to go fuck off. <laughs> I'm going to get a burrito." Daughter. <laughs> yeah, <I'm- laughs> I hear Ireland is full of donuts and burritos. Let's go there.
2: So, Darren, before we uh, before we continue on, did you want to talk to the to the what are your thoughts about the epic thing? And then I want if you want to dovetail that into Clay's point about the Federation storyline here because I think that's a good place to start.
0: Well, I mean, the, the epic thing is kind of interesting because, like, you're you're entirely correct that I think there's a tendency in fandom in general, um, and not just Star Trek fandom, but, like, all sorts of, like, television fandom, like, long-form storytelling fandom, to sort of fixate on the big events. And, I mean, like, you see that in comic books where, like, the, the things that sell are the big event comics where nothing will ever be the same again. And to sort of assume that they exude a narrative gravity that makes them immediately worthy of, like, discussion and attention and all this sort of stuff. And I think that there's... An aspect of that to this two-parter, but one of the things, and again, this ties into like what I've been talking about, like the difference in inheritance that like Deep Space Nine took from the next generation as opposed to the like the other Star Trek shows, which is that like Deep Space Nine does these wonderful, epic, like galactic stories, and in many ways like Deep Space Nine is a story of like this Alpha Quadrant that gets tied up in this sort of like epic saga that like involves all the great powers and has these gigantic stakes eventually and everything sort of like keeps escalating and escalating throughout. But what DSpace 9 does that's very interesting is that it always anchors that in the deeply personal, in that it's always something personal that instigates all this like epic drama and these massive betrayals and these huge battles, for example. Like, for example, in this one, like Garrick and Odo end up on a Romulan ship invading Dominion space, trying to commit mass genocide because, you know, Garrick was almost murdered when his shop was blown up and it's like that's your sort of segue into talking about that but later on you have all the stuff with the Klingons which involves Worf for example you have another huge crisis that begins because one of the guest stars like has this like big insecurity about his social status and so decides to trade up by betraying his entire people and being very vague here because Clay hasn't seen the series but anybody who has knows what I'm talking about and like these baseline always that's the one where
1: Cisco shoots Jake right
0: yeah and it's revealed that Jake was actually uh, Garrick all along. <laughs> yep. Um okay. but yeah it it's it's like it happens sort of repeatedly over the course of the show. Deep Space Nine always grounds these like huge epic moments in something very very small and even in the is cast like the centerpiece of the episode is obviously the big like explosion boom stuff blow up Dennis McCarthy finally gets to do an operatic score sort of bit of the climax but it's also hinges on that small scene between Garrick and Odo which is very personal. And very intimate. And Deep Space Nine, and Then after this, obviously, goes on. The next episode is is really small and really intimate. It's almost a chamber piece, and it sort of does that throughout. Like so, after the Way of the Warrior, it does like the Visitor, which is another small, intimate chamber piece. And this is in contrast to say what Voyager learned from Next Generation, which is always like bigger is better. And Voyager has this weird fixation on doing like blockbuster storytelling on television, where it's big event after big event after big event after big event, but with no character work tied into it. So like you have. I recently rewatched like the sixth season cliffhanger of Voyager, which is basically, what if the best of both worlds, but three times as large? Because that means it's three times as better. And you're like, no, that's that's not how storytelling works. And I think that like these Space Nine, in particular like the Die's Cast and Probable Calls, work as well as they do because they never lose sight of the character. And I think that we talked last week about like one of the interesting things about this two parter, uh, and Wes pointed it out, is that basically what this two-parter does is it forces the Federation to take a seat, a back seat, and it basically says, look, the most important thing that's happening in these two episodes does not involve the Federation in any way, shape, or form. And I think that Clay pointed out last week that Starfleet's position is basically like, yeah, oh, we'll sit back and see what happens, really, when the dust settles. So you have this interesting thing where, like, the big late-season two-parter involves the Romulans, uh, who have not been an active part of Deep Space Nine, you know, for you know, particularly active part of it, and the Cardassians, who have you know always been sort of eager, but have never really had like a big focal sort of like Klingon Civil War type thing going on, and the Dominion, which are an ominous threat that were really introduced at the start of the season. And these are the three actors who are sort of like dancing around each other at a knife fight over the course of the episode. And Space 9 is basically like, well, what if we watch the interactions of these three forces at play, and we assume that each of them have their own separate agendas for what's taking place, and like none of this directly affects the Federation. You know, it's one of those great, not everything is about you, Picard, moments like from Star Trek. It's like, OK, the Cardassians do have a life outside of just being painful and sort of like oppressing like, people in the demilitarized zone. I think Clay's entirely right that like one of the weakest spots of the episode is the fact that it absolutely 110% has to justify having like the other seven members of the main cast involved in any way, shape or form. Because it has to come up with something for them to do. And there's a really great moment in the episode where this really, really, really shines through. Which is when, after they've hijacked the Defiant, after they've gone into the Gamma Quadrant, after they're chasing Odo, you have this scene where, like, the cloak is failing. And you have this, oh my god, everything's, like, gone to hell and we're decloaked. And you have, like, the act break, which consists of Kira saying, Commander, if the Jem'Hadar show up while we're decloaked. Cisco says, we'll have to fight our way that out is of here. The, that is, the camera <laughs> zooms in on his face. And the music soars in the background. And it's like, you can tell the writers were like, we really have to remind the audience that, like, Cisco is technically the lead of this show. So, uh, yeah, let's let's do something that explains why he's not doing anything in this episode. I nearly I nearly that.
2: fell out of my chair with it. There was, like, the opposite reaction of falling out of my chair. I couldn't believe how bad that line in the push zoom in on was. He's like, we'll yeah. fight our way out. It's like a video game sequence or something. It was terrible.
1: Yeah. I, I also loved how manufactured all of that tension was when they f- that when when the cloak fails and the guy's like, yeah, no, that was me. I did that because I was under orders to do it. But now that I've done it, technically I've fulfilled my mission. So, yeah, you can totally trust me again. Yeah. And then it's like, good. Well, Clay, now the cloak is fixed. It's like nothing has happened.
2: I don't know if you remember. I'll just call you landfill for the rest we'll of the time. We'll never speak of it again. Yeah. Uh, Michael Eddington was introduced in The Search. And we have not. He did look familiar,
1: but I couldn't place where. We, he, where he apparently
2: has where. been working as like a co-chief of security with Odo. We've just never seen him since the search. <laughs> um mm-hmm. But he is he is that character, and that that scene would have worked so much better if he had just been in one other episode. It's like instead of just random dude who's here and going yeah. to blow up the developing cloak.
1: You don't mean just hanging the camera six inches from his face five five or six times in the episode wasn't good enough for you?
2: Yeah, and it, it, he's distractingly balding in a way that a lot of actors aren't anymore, so it's like it's the only thing that I can really... Yeah,
1: he's got, like, he's got like cartoon comic book balding hair.
2: Homer Simpson, yeah. he's He becomes a very important character, actually, and it's just kind of a letdown the way that they do it here, and totally yeah, I agree with you that his whole thing... Cisco gets to do his sort of uh, dramatic, like anyone who wears that uniform, I never doubt their word. He gets to do that sort of thing, but that was kind of a good line. I like that line. The what, other, the other, what's scene, interesting
0: about that? Oh,
2: well, just the the other that's scene that's, that's weird is the there's a Kira and, Sis, Kira and Cisco scene where Kira wants to check on O'Brien and Cisco's like leave him alone. That scene has no yeah. relevance to anything. It's just it's just in there, It's weird, right?
0: Just on that, like, um, Cisco and, editing, and Eddington line, that's a really great example of, like, you could almost feel the Deep Space Nine writers figuring something out as they're writing it. It's like, we'll throw it in because we need to, like, save time and we need to justify having all these sets and all these actors who are paying to hang around for the week that we're shooting this episode with the Cardassians, the Romulans. But you have, like, that line where, like, Cisco and Eddington talk about how much the uniform means to them. Yeah. And you that sort of like sets up something later on with the characters that I don't think the writers had figured out at this point in the show, but which becomes like an interesting dynamic back and forth between the two. And it's weird that it's seated in such a completely throwaway pointless sort of subplot. Because this is very much like this reminds me of like later on as the show grows and it sort of expands its focus, it always has this limitation of like nineties television. Because now if you were doing this episode uh, on a show like, say, Westworld or Sopranos or Game of Thrones, what you would simply do is you would do this episode and Cisco wouldn't be in it at all. You'd have, like, mm. you come up with some excuse at the end for Garrick and Odo to get back to the station. Maybe the Dominion sort of let them go because he's a changeling or whatever. But, like, you wouldn't need to have this subplot that keeps coming back to, like, oh, O'Brien, Kira, Bashir, Sisko and Dax are also in the show. But because this is 90s television and because they have to be in almost every episode, you really have this really awkward sort of sutured in subplot that really messes with the tempo of the story. And it happens again over the course of the show, like later on in the sixth season, there's an episode where O'Brien gets a character centric episode, but they literally have to write a scene into the start of the episode, Dunner Among Thieves, where all the characters are like, oh man, I am so concerned about O'Brien while he's doing this thing that none of us are involved in. Isn't it great that we're all standing around talking about that together?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. They um you know, it's it's a subplot that I totally understand why it's there though. Like I can I can see the struggle in the episode that they must have had where it's like Odo and Garrick are in the um was it the Gamma Quadrant? Yep. Yeah. So Odo and Garrick are in the Gamma Quadrant. We've set up this thing that Starfleet is telling Cisco that they could be on the brink of war. You need to Get everybody out of Deep Space Nine. And if they had just left that, those are two fairly interesting stories. Like the what Cisco does, Cisco and company do on Deep Space Nine to prepare for this could be fairly interesting. You know, dealing with people and 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 telling them how they're gonna uh, seeing how people are gonna react to this news and how are they gonna families, get everybody off. Blah, it. blah, blah. Yeah. 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 It, it's it's very much a separate story from what's happening with Garrick and Odo. But the problem is, you need to get Odo and Garrick back, and the only thing that they have, lest they somehow steal a Romulan warbird and fly that away, all they've got is a runabout, and you've set- I wouldn't put it past them in another season to maybe do that, but um, all they've got on the ship is a runabout, and you've already set the Hadar up as being able to blow up the fucking Enterprise. So they're not going to be able to make it out of there alive if all they have is a runabout. So they're gonna need someone, maybe with a smaller ship that can move fast that has lots of guns on it, to save them. So you gotta get Cisco onto the Defiant so he can go because they need to get Odo and Garrick back. So I understand the 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 conundrum there. Um I just wish they had managed to do it a little bit more uh uh seamlessly well, but
2: see, see i i don't think i think they spend too much time with it and the problem yeah it, it, i would agree to me yeah. to me they what treat the, it like a yeah the, uh, they well, they treat it like a subplot that actually needs to yes. be there as opposed to seeing us get on the defiant and then showing up at the end like i don't need to see yes, this middle journal. exactly exactly but the yeah. the thing is that the other thing that focusing on that does is that i think it does damage to the actual odo and garrick storyline which i feel is missing a scene between the two of them. There, there should be mm. a early torture scene between Garrick and Odo. Instead of the Garrick turns the machine on and we get the Kira scene thing, she wants to talk to O'Brien, and then we cut back to Odo suffering from the torture effect. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit there where because the pacing of that storyline is so fast, the, the character flipping and the, the character interactions between Odo and Garrick feel forced. It feels like they're not naturally arriving at positions that they should be. Um, yeah I think you can overlook it. It's just something I think would be strengthened by one more scene between the two of them, where odo needles Garrick a little bit about how he how he's not as good at his job as he used to be
1: yeah and i I also <clears throat> thought that their interactions were um I was surprised that Garrick had apparently straight up flipped sides like the nature of his character is such that i kept expecting especially that early scene where uh where he comes in and he's kind of basically telling odo what's going to happen and odo's being uh you know bristling up against it and garrick ends the scene by saying i really hope you'll listen to what i say and i was like oh that's going to be one of those things where you know, a Sherlock Holmes kind of thing, where Odo's like, "I realized what you were telling me was actually this." You know, one of those things to like. That's how they they managed to get out because Garrick never really switched sides all along. He was giving him kind of like this coded message kind yeah. of thing. One of those things. Yeah. But that's not the case. He's just he's just back with Cardassia now. Yes,
2: which, which is true I, to his character. That's that's all he's ever said that he wanted to do. But I know I true, know what you but, mean. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I mean he's presented as that character who is. Always going to walk the line, but always end up, as I've talked about before, always end up on the side of the of, of the good guys. And um, I guess having him flip is not a bad thing. It's I don't think they did anything wrong. But I think what's missing might be a scene where he is conflicted a little bit about it or something. I don't know. There's I feel like there's a... a That's kind a, of my torture scene idea. Is yeah. To, uh, to yeah, heighten there the needs fact that I, pushing back. Yeah, I think there needs to be some indication that this decision is is uh, is for real, or like you know, or something. I don't know. It it, it just seems like such a, a flipped switch for him to just go back to being a um, a, a torturer, or just with Cardassia. Like I kept expecting, like when he brought that thing in that machine in and you know he's talking about torturing him and all this kind of stuff i thought that he was that was going to be the point where he like you know killed those two romulans and we like all right we got to get out of here like <laughs> right. one of those things um i'm happy they didn't do that because i think it's more interesting what they ended up doing but i, I just kept waiting for that scene and it never came darren what did you think
0: I actually, I uh, of the three of us, I think he's the one who actually really, really liked the Odo and Garrick sort of interactions. And I thought that it got at something... Oh,
1: don't get me which, wrong. I thought they oh, were great. Yeah. I really liked those scenes.
0: But uh, I, actually, I actually thought that a lot of it felt very in-character and very well-observed. And particularly in terms of how Deep Space Nine approaches its outsider or its non-Starfleet characters. And even its Starfleet characters when Worf eventually shows up in the fourth season. Because Deep Space Nine has this weird... not weird, but it has this idea repeatedly and it's a very like the stock criticism of Deep Space Nine is that it's not Star Trek because it's very dark it's very ominous and it's very cynical about the human condition and even like we talked a little bit last week on Improbable Cause about how like Garrick's opening conversation with Bashir where he's like oh by the way humans you still like have that sort of appetite and that greed and you still feed it you still eat as if somebody's going to snatch it off your plate so maybe like your brutal sort of impulses aren't that far from the surface which is something that seems very on Star trek when you sort of look at it at the, like, at the premise of like Roddenberry's shared universe. But one of the things that *These Space Nine has that's very humanist and that feels like its own like slant on what makes Star Trek Star Trek is the idea that if people who are radically different from one another and come from completely different backgrounds and cultures uh, and sort of different perspectives, if they come together and they spend time together Inevitably, over time, the best values, and by the best values, like democracy and, and human rights and self respect and respect for other people and tolerance and empathy, will all come out and come to the fore and they become sort of contagious. So you have this motif that runs through Deep Space Nine repeatedly where characters come from different backgrounds, different cultures that are perhaps more adversarial, more aggressive, uh, less rights focused, less democratic than the Federation. So I'm thinking, for example, explicitly of Garak coming from Cardassia, but it also applies to Quark coming from Varanginar or um, Odo, who is like, he's literally defined as a straight up fascist. He's really, really into justice. Um, and by justice, we mean oppression. Uh, and also like Worf, who comes from like the Klingon culture, which is very sort of rigid, old fashioned, it's a literal empire. And what happens is the idea that by spending time with the Federation, by spending time in the company of these human characters, they are sort of changed by that experience, the point where they become fundamentally different people. And Odo's entirely correct when he tells Garrick early on that like living on Deep Space Nine has made you rusty and that Garrick is not as good as he used to be at what he's doing. And a large part of why I think Garrick's like heel face turn is so dramatic in the first half of the episode and why he's so committed to it is because he wants to prove to both himself and to Tame that he is exactly as Cardassian as he was when he was exiled, that he is exactly as totalitarian, exactly as ruthless, and exactly as brutal. And he even has that conversation with Taine, where he's like, look, I have to torture Odo, because if I don't, you won't trust me. You won't take me back in. You won't accept that I'm the same person that came up with you, or that came up under you. I have to actually do these things in order to prove to yourself, and also to myself, that I am still as ruthless and violent as I used to be. And the reality is that he's not. He's like, like Quark, has sort of like been... Uh, like, internalize these values of the Federation, where Quark over the course of Deep Space Nine becomes this weird, like, humanist figure in a very strange sense where he's got, like, almost he's not a heart of gold, and he repeatedly pushes against it, but it comes up time and time again that he's not a Ferengi in the same way that other Ferengi are. Um, Garrick is not a Cardassian in the same way that he presents himself to be, and he's, like, over the course of the series, like, in conversation, like, he's introduced talking uh to, like, he has conversation with Bashir, about, like, the literary form. He complains about, like, you know, he complains about Julius Caesar as a work of, like, human fiction. It's like, that's not how you write fiction. Cardassian fiction is so, so much better and more intricate and fantastic. And yet, at the end of this episode, what does he quote but Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare? And there's a sense that, like, as much as Garrick wants to be Cardassian and Ruthless and not to feel anything, and as much as his performance is geared towards that, in that it's a very showy performance, he's very, like, He's very much, he's demonstrated, peacocking for both Tane and for Odo and for himself to say, look, I'm still as ruthless and violent as I always was. There's a sense throughout that he's not. And even though he wants to go home, and this happens repeatedly over the course of the show, and it's like, it's literally how the is cast in Improbable Cause parallel Odo and Garrick, in that both of them are exiles who want to go home on some fundamental level. The only difference is that Odo knows for a fact that he can't go home. Whereas Garrick has to learn it in this two-parter that he can't go back to the way things used to be, oh, where you have that yes. sort of like oh, so, so, go. Ahead, well, sir.
2: Odo has the, and what what I was talking about in probable cause is that Odo has the upper hand in these episodes in his battle because Odo has a realization of what the status quo is at this point, and that Odo recognizes that he can't go home because he doesn't fit in with the founders. And he has that line about, uh, we both, me and you, Garrick, have the same enemy and it's Tane. You just don't recognize it yet. Um, Odo recognizes in Garrick that Garrick doesn't see himself, that Garrick is too changed to return home at this point. He, he does not fit in there, uh, just the same way that Odo doesn't fit in there. So their, their stories dovetail again at the very end where they both realize that, you know, they have the conversation about, well, we can at least be friends together here as strangers in a strange land. Um... And it's just built nicely off of that. I think that's the that's the thing about the episode is that it, Garrick's reversal from being in total control is flipped in this episode, and I don't think he even recognizes it until he starts to torture Odo and then has misgivings
1: about it. I kind yeah. <clears> of... <throat> it would have been great if instead of quoting Julius Caesar at the end, he had made a callback to Hellraiser and just said, Jesus wept. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um... I had something about the, I was going to say something about the culture influence, but I don't think I really have anything. Does anyone want to, um, while I collect my thoughts, does anyone have anything that they wanted to build off of that? If you want to keep talking about Garrick and Odo's uh, torture scene, or should we just get into more of the space, let's say the space epic stuff and the overall meta plot for later. Um,
0: But I mean, yeah, Garrick and Odo are two sides of the same coin. And there's this weird, interesting thing that, and I think D Space Nine sort of builds off Next Generation when it inherits war. Which is this idea that when you are an exile from your people, when you feel sort of distant from them or isolated from them, you tend to your nationalism becomes almost performative. In that, like Worf, and it happens repeatedly over, say, the next generation and into Deep Space Nine, where Worf is like this idealized Klingon form, like he's he's the most honorable of Klingons. We say that Worf Except- was.
2: We say that Worf learned to be a Klingon by reading about them. Is how we described yeah, it. Yeah, Worf is basically a hipster Klingon. Yep.
0: That's it exactly. And Garrick at this point is almost a hipster Cardassian in that he's sort of like he understands what he has to do to be a Cardassian, uh, but he just doesn't recognize the culture when he comes back to it. And there's this nice tension that runs through his arc over the course of the entire series, where Garrick accepts that the Cardassia that he left is never going to be the one that he can come back to, and it becomes this sort of really like poignant sort of running plot. But the die is cast really encapsulates that very very well, which is like Garrick. Can't do what he used to do because he spent so much time with probably Bashir, yeah. if we're being entirely honest.
2: You know, they never say it, but it's, I mean, it would make sense in Garrick's character and how he grew up to be this super spy and everything. Garrick probably has never really had real friends to this point, right? Like the station would probably be the first people that he's actually connected with because, as we've seen of the Obsidian Order, they are not above killing even their closest uh, confidants uh, regularly. So, uh, Garrick is not, Garrick's been. Exposed to this, you know, by befriending Bashir and Odo to
1: an extent, is respect. They respect each other, um, and they they kind of touch on that in, in the first episode, don't they? In that scene where they're eating together, where or am I am I just remembering remembering that wrong? But it isn't doesn't Garrick have some line about like, what do you think that we're doing here or something?
2: Uh, that's a different episode, is or is it? Is, uh, is maybe it I'm just. You might be.
1: Have,
0: oh, that's I'm the just... that's the wire where where he has this big shouting match with Bashir. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, right. at, at, while they're having lunch, but yeah, I like that. It it's like Garrick has probably never had a standing lunch date before, um, which feels like a waste. He's a very good conversationalist. <laughs>
1: yeah, it <laughs> <laughs> seems to know. And him. he eats slowly. He's well read. <laughs> I I did I did like when they cut back to Bashir and O'Brien. O'Brien's like, <laughs> "What the fuck are you talking about?". <laughs>
2: Yeah, the uh, that's I'm trying to eat. Stop that, talking about yeah. that's something that's been put on the back burner. Is their their friendship sort of although it makes uh it makes sense. Yeah, I do like that performance and everything. Um, you know,
0: um, I love from- that. Deep Space Nine does things like that. Like again, this is the like intimate and epic thing that Deep Space Nine does very well. Where like the scene where a bunch of like fuck off Romulan warbirds and Cardassian ships show up on the doorstep opens or the sequence opens with like. O'Brien and Bashir have have breakfast. Stay tuned for more. Um, and it works really well. My thing about yeah. that
2: is, is the show now just making fun of the fact that cloaked ships are not cloaked at all? Like <laughs> every every episode, they seem to be surprised. the 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 way the cloak working seems to be that people have extremely short term memory about cloaks existing, and <laughs> because they they're always like, "Well, we're sensing these." anomalous readings out there it looks like something invisible is out there and then the ship decloaks, cloaks and they're like oh shit it was a cloaked ship it's like no shit and of course that's that's what it was it's, it's just very odd to me
0: i like the idea that o'brien has a post-it on his little panel underneath anomalous sensor readings going it's probably a cloaked ship yes.
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it's a unique setup too where the um the station is not in Federation space, right? It's in Bajoran space, which is not part of the Federation. So you do get more. They are kind of out there on their own. And like when the fleet passes, you get the sense of they're not invading Federation territory. They're just passing through this other section. It gives you a nice um, grounding into how isolated the station is from Federation.
1: Yeah, it was it was the first time they've ever had a fleet reveal like that. That didn't. Re- that wasn't just the beginning of an assault on the, on the station or on the ship or something. It's just like, oh yeah, those guys are here, and they're just taking the long way around. You know, just passing through to get to the wormhole. Nothing to see here.
2: They're gonna pass through. I think that the. You know,
1: oh go ahead. I was just gonna say, uh, just to touch back on the uh, the Odo and and Garrick stuff. I I think I I kept looking for the that that uh, that turn. That I was talking about where I kept expecting Garrick to, you know, be like, hey, you know, I'm obviously on your side. This is how we're going to get out of here. And everything up in this episode, up until they cut back to the interrogation scene and Odo is like falling apart. Mm-hmm. I was kind of a little wishy-washy on it. And it was up until right from that point on, I was like, oh, shit, they're actually they're actually doing some stuff here. Um, Like. That that cut back to him like falling apart and that Garrick was actually torturing him um, Was the the point in the episode where I was really engaged and from that point on everything that they did after that I thought was really um, That's when it really showed me what they were trying to do where they were uh, they had the character stuff, but they were they were pushing these guys very hard in in very different directions and Setting up stuff that was coming later, uh, you know, th- th- when they start revealing the uh Romulan Cardassian alliance, but it's not really an alliance, and it's and uh, and the the the, the, the it turns yeah. out, yeah, it turns out the Gem. it was a whole it was a ruse the whole time, like that stuff was like, man, I was I was literally I was not expecting that stuff, that was all of the, those twists and turns I thought were great. The, Great use of the uh, "He made me fuck her" guy too. He was the, <laughs> oh, he's uh, the main. Guy. He's the, he's the main, Orser. <laughs> Yeah, the main Romulan guy who turns out to be the the uh, founder.
2: Yes, yeah, the um, I like that too. Did you did the reveal catch you? But I was surprised on rewatch how uh, much they hint that he is a changeling throughout the thing.
1: I didn't, I didn't see it coming at all.
2: Okay, because he has the line about uh, "You are a liar, Mister Garrick, and I am an observer," uh, which is what the founders consider themselves to be. He is. Extremely concerned for Odo's safety throughout the entire thing. He never wants to mm. have the cha- uh, have Odo
0: harmed um, He's also surprised to learn about like the whole changeling the, the whole, torture like, device forcing a changeling. Yeah, the torture device which would be obviously more concerning to a changeling.
1: Yeah, that's some good intel he got there Yeah, <laughs> I was I, I have to say I was very happy that after he revealed himself to be a changeling He didn't turn back into Odo's mom or something uh like you never see who what his changeling form is they just transport him out of there. I was very happy that they didn't do something like sappy there. See, I I
2: think it's a missed opportunity not to have him change back into the generic changeling form which is a imitation of them imitating Odo. Um b- because we never which actually see it. By the way, really mean
0: spirited. Like it, the entire race exists basically to mock Odo's inability to do a proper human face. Yes. It's really passive aggressive.
2: Well, I, did they? I, oh, is that what it is? Yes, that's why they look like that. that. They're doing they're doing it because they want Odo to be comfortable.
1: Oh, I, they probably mentioned that in that episode where they show up, but I just I don't remember. But that's that's interesting. Yeah, that's kind of a <laughs> that's not cool. So yeah, they, <laughs> they haven't discussed it yet.
2: But Odo is not as good of a change. It's like
0: mocking it. a speech impediment,
2: right? Well, <laughs> right. To,
1: to, to clean that, you're... I
0: thought I'd make you feel more comfortable by doing a fake lisp.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So like, guess, if we had done this, if we had done this podcast, and Wes and I both did Irish accents, <laughs> <That's funny>.
0: just, <laughs> just to make me feel more welcome, yeah. exactly. Yeah, uh, I'm going to say, "Oh, we Bigara, the Gemadar, some fierce lads, aren't they?" Yeah, you got it.
2: I, I'd have been like, "Oh, are you what, mate? I've been out there all night." Um, sorry, we'll, <laughs> we'll continue on. But anyway, the um, I think that the the character stuff works. We talked about the Federation. We talked about Odo and Garrick. We talked about their torture scenes. Um. The torture scene is very effective, it steps into the Odo, Odo knowing that Garrick has this level that he can't go to, and he's sort of mocking Garrick as it's going along. Um, and then we can get into the, we were at 40 minutes, so why don't we just get into the sort of meta plot that's undertaking here, which is the, or the big overall arc spot, uh which is the first reappearance of the Dominion here, where the, the Founders trick the Obsidian Order and Helfiar to invade and attack them. One of my problems with the Dice cast is, while I love that this is how everything is kicked off, I feel like internally the episode is very not clear about what has happened here where in terms of the outcome mm-hmm. for the Cardassians and the Romulans because this is, there's a line, the Changeling has a line that says, after this day, the Cardassians and the Romulans are no longer a threat to us. There's only 20 ships in this fleet. right? I don't... And they're
1: not even like officially Romulans and Cardassians. Right, it's
2: not the it's not the entire military going out
1: there to sort of take care
2: of things. And then, so after you get rid of that fact that it's only 20 ships, am I supposed to be led to believe that their entire agencies, intelligence agencies, are on these ships, and so killing them wipes out the intelligence agency? It just, it feels very, it feels like it's trying to be dramatic in a way that is not necessary, and I would have just rather had Either escalate the stakes of how many ships are in the fleet or just sort of tie it down a little bit. So it's not this we've totally wiped
1: out these two races and we're just coming for you guys next. Well, you know, I I guess I was kind of reading it a little bit differently. Like cause I <clears throat> my understanding was that <clears throat> excuse me. Um the plan that Tane was a part of was not something that had been cleared by anybody in Cardassia or 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 the Romulans. And doing his executing his plan and failing was going to be dis- more destructive to Cardas the Cardassians and the Romulans because you, they've he has forced these two into an alliance in a way that they probably wouldn't have gone into otherwise, and they no longer have the element of surprise. They you know their their special forces have been blown up. And they basically in failing in failing in his mission, he has really put an imbalance between these two cultures that now have to probably work together. Yes. They tied um, stones to each which, other, basically. Yeah. And, and it has put them on on the de- on the defense and put them on their heels, whereas the Jem'Hadar now have the upper hand and only really have to worry about the Federation. Um, and I well, I totally see what you're saying, where it's it's on a literal standpoint. Yeah, I don't. I don't. It's kind of silly to say that because you know clearly they have more ships somewhere. The Borg
2: um, attack was literally two times as bad as that. right. Yeah, yeah. For one yeah. species, for one for the Federation yeah. only. It, it wasn't anything else. Yeah,
1: yeah. But I I think I was just reading it more like from a uh, uh, tactical standpoint um, that. They had they had struck a a tactical victory that was 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 pretty pretty big.
2: Yes, as the title says, the die is cast, and they've made a, they've rolled snake eyes basically. Um, the I, I think that the what's interesting about the culture thing, Darren, if you wanted to talk about, it, is that it's a very unique Star Trek story and the way that they're taking this because the Dominion are unified through force and subjugation, and the Alpha Quadrant are very distinct cultural personalities that have very different uh, perspectives on how to handle situations. This will become a much bigger issue in the fourth season um, with the Klingons. But what's funny is that you see this Cardassian and Romulan sort of alliance going off. And as Clay said, they've sort of tied each other down to failure at this point. And maybe it's just provoking the Dominion was the wrong thing. But the the show and the series excels at this kind of Using the cultural differences to be the politics and the drivers of different perspectives that you'd have in, like, a human uh, environment where you'd have the pacifists and you'd have the sort of uh, war hawks and things like that. Um, do you think that the. Uh, it, we sort of touched on this as an improbable cause, but do you, do you see anything special about how the Romulans and the Cardassians are used at this point and in this episode of itself? Do you agree with Clay? It The.
0: Well, okay. It's kind of interesting the way that Deep Space Nine deals with the Romulans over the course of its run, because it feels like Next Generation had Romulans as like their defining character trait with sneaky bastards. Um, And it feels like Deep Space Nine is basically gone, okay, but the Cardassians are really good sneaky bastards. So the Romulans, we don't really know what to do with. And it's kind of telling that after the die is cast, it almost feels like the writers were just using that as an excuse to write the Romulans out for about the next three years until they came up with something interesting to do with them. Um, with the Cardassians, um, I think you're entirely right, like, Wes, that it, it makes no sense mathematically in terms of, like, this crippling the Cardassians and causing them to fall into chaos. And I think that it that's very much a testament to the fact that this was, as we pointed out when we talked about Improbable Cause, a two-parter that was sort of written uh, as not planned as a two-parter, but became this big, epic thing. And I think that, in fairness, they do go back and they sort of fill in the blanks a little bit in terms of, like, what chaos this actually caused on Cardassia, because it's not lost the fleet that is the big deal in terms of like the the Cardassian Union because obviously in Defiant it's like oh it's a secret fleet which means that like losing a secret fleet isn't actually really that much of a loss because you're left with <laughs> what you had before you discover that you had a secret fleet
2: right it's like losing money that you found in the
1: sofa you just you never had it in the first place
0: but it's it that your friend
1: found yeah <laughs> or like losing the you know spore drive technology right exactly
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> But yeah, so it it has that sort of uh, sort of aspect to it. But I think later episodes go back and they sort of flesh it out a little bit, and they suggest that basically what happened was it wasn't the material loss of ships and lives that caused it. It was this basically caused the Obsidian Order to collapse and implode into itself, which is like one third of the Cardassian government. You have like the the Dutha- Dutha- Council and the Central Command, um, and you have that that basically. So you have one of the two, one of the three prongs falling in. And then basically the idea is that that will cause the other two to collapse, which sort of happens later on. You get through a bit of exposition and sort of again through like plot developments that sort of build off this in an interesting way. Yep. Again, one of the interesting aspects of the of Deep Space Nine is that because so much of the big shifts are improvised, what typically happens is, particularly in like late season two-parters, you have like these massive earth-shattering events, which happen because the writers are writing a story, can't get it to work and decide to throw in this massive universe-shattering twist. And then you have, like, the four or five episodes afterwards that were in development um, that just have to be written anyway without any reference to those big events. So it happens later on in the fifth season when something huge happens to the Alpha Quadrant powers, uh, but it takes four or five episodes until anybody actually talks about it properly. And and here, here you have it happen as well, where, like, immediately following this episode, which is, like, plunge the Cardassian Union into chaos, you have Sisko and Jake go on a lovable adventure in which they encounter a bunch of Cardassians who are, like... Have fireworks with them, and it's like, what, what the hell happened? Are you guys not aware of what literally just happened? I, um, I'm
1: always, I always find that really funny. Like, uh, for for my obligatory Buffy the Vampire Slayer reference, on that show, there would be whatever the big giant bad guy is, like you know, in the second season, where Angel comes back and he's 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 like, I'm gonna kill you and all of your friends, and you'll never know when I'm coming to get you. And then the next episode, they're just fighting like a computer demon and just completely yeah. <laughs> forget that he's even out there at all, you know? Yeah.
0: There's there's an element of that, I think, immediately after this as well that sort of happens. But I, th- I think it's very clever, and I think it's very interesting, because, I mean, one of the things about designing the Dominion for the writers of Deep Space Nine was that they, A, knew that, like, um, they have all the established sort of Alpha Quadrant characters, like the Klingons, the Romulans, the Cardassians. They're all, like, established sort of Star Trek archetypes at this point, and they knew that, like, Voyager was going to the Delta Quadrant, and it had been made very clear early on that Voyager would be dealing with the Borg, but they also had, like, you know, the Kazon and the Bedeans happening around the same time. So the Voyager, so the Deep Space Nine writers had to come up with something for the Gamma Quadrant that was kind of different. So what they came up with was this idea of the Dominion as, and you're right, as this sort of like unified front. They're basically like a totalitarian state, they're a a warped mirror of, like, the, the Alpha Quadrant powers. In that, like, the Jem'Hadar are very much mirrored with the Klingons repeatedly to the point where in the Jem'Hadar, one of the Jem'Hadar says, boy, I really wish i met a Klingon. They seem like they'd be more my speed. And you have, obviously, the Vorta with their pointy ears, which are more like Romulans or sort of like Vulcans with their hinted telekinesis that's never really explored or explained or anything like that, but it's just sort of there. And you have the Founders, which are almost like the human characters in Star Trek in that they're like the all-rounders with the great stats who can be absolutely anything they need to be at any given moment. It's kind of interesting that you have this like counterpoint to Deep Space Nine's idea of like you because the big recurring fascination of Deep Space Nine is like humanism and individualism. And that's what like distinguishes Deep Space Nine from the other Star Trek shows. Because the other Star Trek shows are very much like, well, what makes the Federation great is that we all work together and we work towards a common good. Whereas Deep Space Nine tends to be what makes the Federation great. Is that it's a place where we can all be ourselves, and we can all respect one another, and have different viewpoints, and meet other cultures. It's so like, the all Dominion- rally
1: around the fact that we're <laughs> racist towards Ferengi. Yes, 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 very much so.
2: I, I think it's it's an interesting, it's an it, it accurately sort of connects the dots to for to like a real world situation, which is that. Well, it's great to have you know non-nationalist, uh, sort of individual-based respect and like a sort of multicultural type thing it kind of runs into the problem of pacifism which is that if you truly believe in pacifism you need to rely on other people to protect you from people who are going to harm you um and that's the like it's interesting that the the Dominion is shown to be superior in this situation just in terms of they are superior at invading and taking over places because the strength of the Alpha quadrant is the multicultural aspect and that causes strife between the different groups so they don't get along with each other they don't trust each other the dominion takes advantage of that and and this episode has worked to split them by not uh because of this joint venture that left out the federation and the klingons you've caused this schism between the relations there and the dominion and the changelings in particular are very adept at working those cracks and separating people and they sort of divide and conquer as an
0: mo yeah, which is, is really, really remarkable and very, very kind of clever. And it's interesting that Deep Space Nine sort of acknowledges, like, this is the thing, like, Deep Space Nine is a very humanist, very individual show, but it acknowledges, like, the material benefits of fascism in terms of the Dominion, and that, like, the Dominion are literally one mind. They are literally one entity. They are a force of one will, and that is very appealing uh, in a certain set with a certain mindset and a certain culture. And it is, you know, in some ways is better suited to warfare than democracy and liberal democracy. And as he pointed out, multiculturalism. And it's kind of interesting that Deep Space Nine does that because it acknowledges in some ways the limitations of multiculturalism and liberalism, while still arguing that liberalism and multiculturalism are better just because they are, yeah. because they are inherently superior. Because it fixes and these it's, it's characters, very...
2: like it fixes Garrick and Ode. it you know, it fixes them into recognizing the good that the Federation can provide.
0: Yeah, which is, is very good. And for all the cynicism of which Deep Space Nine is accused, and I think that, yeah, the fact that the Dominion are presented as strong in contrast to, like, the Federation and the Alpha Quadrant powers being, like, divided and squabbling and weak is something that I think many critics of Deep Space Nine probably see as an example of the show being, like, dark and edgy and cynical. But I, I, I don't think it is. I think it's, it's more being honest about acknowledging that, like, liberal democracy and multiculturalism aren't good because they will win any fight into which they're thrown through sheer force. They're better because they make us better people and they're better in the long term. And I don't, like, again, this is something that plays through Deep Space Nine and it pays off very dramatically, like even as late as the final episode, where like what makes the Federation and the Alpha Quadrant Powers great is not that they're stronger militarily or that they're more organized militarily. It's that they're just humanists. Is that they have this sort of sense of decency and integrity and care that runs through it. And I mean, it's very revealing that, like, at the end of the episode, Odo forgives Garrick for torturing him. And at the end, Odo reaches out to Garrick. Like, Odo's response to being tortured by Garrick, being humiliated by Garrick, being forced to acknowledge, like, a secret that it's heavily implied that even he is not comfortable admitting to himself, let alone to others. Is not to like punish Garrick for it. It's not to like shun him or lock him out of his life. It's to reach out to him and to say, Look, I have come to understand that you feel lonely on this station in a way that I, I didn't feel before you tortured me. Um and I'm going to reach out to you as a friend because that's what friends do. That's what decent people do. And there's something very warm in that, even in like the darkness and the bleakness of the episode around it. Yeah.
1: Um, I like it when they use lasers.
2: and garrick's um (laughs) garrick's ending is the same thing of realizing of what he's done to odo by not including in the report what he's talked about so it's a secret that will die between those two i
1: love that last scene i love i thought that last scene was awesome and especially that they don't cut and you only see uh odo in the shadowed reflection i thought that was so cool you don't see that kind of stuff on tv very often and it was just yeah,
0: great, great stuff.
2: It tied into you. you it's would...
0: David Livingston, isn't it? Yes, it is, is. is. Yes, David Livingston. One of the better Star Trek directors. He started as a producer, I think. But he's got a wonderful eye, and he's very good at framing stuff sort of atmospherically. Um, he did like he did the zombie episodes of, of Enterprise, for example, which is very well directed. Uh, and he did some really good Voyager episodes. Well, but yeah, that's a great show.
2: And if it's into you, clay you had said that in a previous episode that you think the directors sometimes just make sure they get coverage of Garrick or Andrew Robinson in every scene yes, because they know they can yeah. cut back to him at any point. There's, the, the camera there's a great,
1: on yeah, there's a great point where they kind of do that without cutting. Well, I guess they do it there without cutting too, but um where uh I think maybe this is in the last episode. Anyway, there's a two shot where odo is i think it's odo and tane are talking and garrick is kind of in the background and then he kind of like steps up so he's in between the two of them and it's you just can't take your eyes off of him cuz even though he's just there listening he's still acting his ass off like shifting his eyes back and forth between each one of them as they're each saying their separate thing and it's just like he's so he's a you know he's he's a secret weapon on the show absolutely yeah
2: yeah um I'll just talk a little bit more about the attack, I think, because it is very important in the the Jem'Hadar
0: sort of annihilation of this fleet and everything. Um, It's the first time we've really seen action on this scale on a Star Trek show, if I remember correctly. I mean, even (laughs) Mm. Wolf 359 took place entirely off-screen. This seems to be like, we talk about this episode in terms of being important in terms of, like, meta plot, and in terms of, like, the Dominion and in terms of the Romans and the Cardassians. It's also important from, like, a technical standpoint because it's the first time that the, the show has done, like, big, impressive, epic space battle action sequences with, like, Jem'Hadar ships pouring out and, like, stuff exploding and, like, Romulan ships getting blown up. And it feels like it sort of sets the... T- it shows what Deep Space Nine can do. Which becomes very relevant at the start of the fourth season and then later on into the fifth and sixth season, just technically speaking. Yeah, they,
1: they always tend to like uh shoot these larger battles very far away. Like the the um I think they show do they show Wolf three five nine in the first episode of Deep no, Space Nine? Oh, oh they, they do, do yes, they, yeah, do. they do. And yeah, any time that they show that it, it always feels like a bunch of tiny ships just going. Pew, 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 pew. Against like the one larger ship and this one is the first it felt like the first time that they really get up and close and personal So when the defiant comes in you're like right next to it as it's like doing barrel rolls and shit and you know blowing everything up and that the sequence when they're coming in at the end and he's like don't fire until You know, we're 500 meters away or something like that. That that stuff was great Yeah, that that's a level of action that I feel like is not is not really on the show ever.
2: It's um, Apparently, the, the the that sequence you're talking about where the defiant shoots the ships at 500 meters or whatever and then flies through the wreckage, apparently it took four days of production to do that. I'm, I'm just thinking of, you know, it's a, in the era of CG, you'd argue that they probably do
1: this kind of stuff too often because of how easy it is yeah. to produce yeah. at
2: this point. So it's clearly, it meant something for them to do it at that point.
1: Was was that scene like them just showing their entire ball sack to Babylon 5? <laughs>
0: My personal favourite uh, detail of this is, like, when people talk about, like, Star Trek being sort of intellectual science fiction and not being about, like, space battles and blowing stuff up, my favourite detail of this is that, like, if you go back to the original series, Elan uh, of Troyes is the only episode of Star Trek that features, like, a proper space battle in it, where the Enterprise and a Klingon ship fire one shot each at each other, mm-hmm. and it's <laughs> actually shown on screen... Uh, And the reason that it was the only episode where that happens is because it took something like two months of model work in order to get those scenes to work. Like, the it was meant to be the second episode of the season. It ends up coming in, like, the second half of the season because post-production on, like, that one shot from one ship to another took so long. It's kind of interesting how when technology moves along, and you're right that CGI makes it easier, because CGI is what makes, like, the later seasons of Deep Space Nine possible when they start doing this sort of thing on a more epic scale. And even this stuff here is probably like rendered a lot easier through like advances in technology and stuff like that. That's happened since the next generation went on the air. Yep. They
1: should have, they should have just at, in the early seasons been like, so all of these ships have energy based weapons, but we've chosen to illustrate those energy based weapons in the form of a of a giant hammer. So anytime you see a <laughs> ship exploding, it's just going to be a guy off screen smashing it with a hammer. That would save them a lot of money.
2: Our, the and score it would be great to strings, see, yeah. if they
1: had done that, it would have been great to see that, like, evolve with the series to how, how do they depict the giant hammer weapon this in the <laughs> series? Like, what's the Deep Space Nine giant hammer weapon look like?
0: I, lo- I love the idea of, like, incre- spending millions and millions of dollars to, like, computer render that, like, really yes. practical effect. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, it now, now have, glows, and it's transparent. We <laughs>
1: have 360 degree control of the giant hammer now, that we do everything on the computer it's some guy in a VR
2: headset, like using, using the hammer uh, and is the rendering. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's, I don't know. Does anyone have anything else to talk about this one? I, I, I don't know if we're, we were, I don't feel like we're scattershot, but it's a, it's an episode that signals the changing of the guard. I think it would be a way to describe it. Yeah. People consider these two to be extremely important. We're going to return to the dominion again. Uh, it doesn't take another 20 episodes to get to the dominion. Um, mostly mm-hmm. because we're at the end of the season, but it's a, it's a changing time. I think that the one point I wanted to make was that I think it's a clever bit of writing that the, when we met the changelings and they said that they were persecuted and that they, uh, what they do is they do in the, in the name of defending themselves this is why they conquer to create security. Their, mm-hmm. their ethos is a clever bit of writing in that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that the bigger they get, the more likely they are to have people react to them like the Cardassians and the Romulans do, which in turn uh, enables their point of view. It, it sort of is a defense of the way that they go about things because they aren't wrong that they do have people trying constantly to attack them, but only because they have this sort of uh, conquering ethos. And I think it's a, it's a good bit of writing. It's clever.
1: My question, and this goes out to you both and everyone else who listens to this show. Is this it? Is is this the point where it all starts being consistently good or is this another one of those things where it's like this is what the show could be but it's going to be another like 45 episodes until it gets to the point. But like you know that's what the last time earlier in the season we had that one really good one I forget which one it was. The start, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. And which really got me into the show, not that I'm not into the show now. But it really got me into it seeing the potential and the only thing that I heard was, yeah, you're right. That one was great. Um, This season's (laughs) going to be kind of (laughs) rough. So is that what season four is looking at here? Is this like another, you know, this one was great and now it's like we're going to have to watch the four episodes about Bashir getting stuck in like a time loop inside of his mother's womb or something.
0: Well, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is that the fourth season has three separate Bashir episodes coming your way. Um, The good news is that they're all actually really, really great. One of the things about Deep Space Nine, and again, this is like, again, the inheritance that it gets from the next generation as compared to Voyager. This is
1: sounding like it's going to be a long way of saying, yes, it doesn't get good, Clay.
0: No, (laughs) no, it it gets better. It gets better. And it it becomes brilliant. And, And like the fourth season of Deep Space Nine is the moment at which everything clicks and it becomes fantastic. The thing with the third season is that like Deep Space Nine learns. Deep Space Nine makes mistakes in order to learn from them. And you can actually see that a lot when you watch the third season, the fourth season back to back. You can see that a lot of the stuff that goes horribly, 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 spectacularly wrong in the third season is like immediately remedied and improved upon in the fourth season. So for example, they take the stuff that works. Like the third season opens with what is effectively a second pilot. So the fourth season does that as well. And it's very clever. The third season doesn't keep the Dominion round active long enough, so the fourth season learns from that mistake and instead sort of keeps its recurring threat, like, simmering throughout the season as a whole and repeatedly comes back to it. Uh, The third season, like, has difficulty spacing character-based episodes and doing generic Star Trek stuff that doesn't work. So the fourth season takes all those aspects and just throws out the generic Star Trek stuff that doesn't work and starts focusing on character a great deal. Like, a lot of what makes the fourth season great is rooted in the failures of the third season. And there's a sense that, like, In the third season, like, they're really, really trying repeatedly to make stuff work. Because this is the one where Michael Piller had sort of left to focus on Voyager and had then gone to work on Legends with UPN. And so he was no longer around to take charge. And Ira Bear was sort of, like, in charge of the show for the first time and trying to figure out what was working. And it's the first Star Trek season that really tries long-form storytelling and serialization properly, like, over the course of the season, in that it introduced the Dominion... It adds like details to the to the Dominion and then it does this two-parter, which furthers the plot with the Dominion. And it doesn't do it very well because there are large stretches of the season where you just forget the Dominion exists. But then because they learned from doing that, the fourth season is a lot better. It opens with like a big event and then it, it understands that it has to keep that event sort of fairly concurrent in people's minds. It has to have like recurring threads and keep referencing back to it in a way that sort of builds momentum throughout. So yeah, the fourth season is one of the best seasons of television that I've ever seen. The third season is not, but I think the reason the fourth season works so well is because it learns from the mistakes uh, and improves upon the successes of the third season as a whole. And that's why I think Deep Space Nine is so fantastic. And it's something that, again, to come back to what Voyager didn't learn and Deep Space Nine did, Voyager instead settles for being mediocre throughout. It never tries anything ambitious, never tries anything particularly like crazy or out there. It never falls flat on its face in a way that Deep Space Nine does very, very rarely. But that's because it never swings for the fences. Whereas Deep Space Nine, the third season, is entirely swinging for the fences. And it is fairly scattershot, whether it hits or misses. But it learns enough from hitting that it manages to do it more consistently when it gets to the fourth season. And the final stretch from the fourth season through to the end of the series is probably the best consecutive run of seasons of the Star Trek show ever. Not to oversell it.
1: It, um, <laughs> when does Worf show up? Season four. Ah, okay. That's all you had to say.
0: <laughs> Thank you for the hard sell, but uh yeah, Worf just <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's great. That's great. But does this car have <laughs> locks on it? Yeah, Worf Worf shows up
2: season four. Uh we have a Dominion themed season finale for this one, uh season three, and then we'll get back into it. I, I would I would agree with Darren. I would say that um well, my memory isn't as fresh. Season four onward. I, I remember season four as being very strong of a season of yeah. Star Trek. Um, I think the first ten episodes are pretty uniformly great.
0: It has two bum episodes, which is like a record low for a Star Trek season. Yeah, Star yeah. Star
2: so um, that's what you have to look forward to, Clay, I suppose, and everyone else who's listening. But it's, um,
0: yeah, the third... And only one of those bad episodes has a sexy vampire
2: in it. Ah, uh, well. ah, only one? <laughs> so clay only has one bad episode is what you're saying um yeah yeah i think that's it we'll we'll kind of wrap it up there uh we're going to take a break an audio clip we'll come back read some patient thoughts and give our final thoughts and then we will call it a day i just read the report that you wrote and i wanted to thank you me for what for not mentioning my desire to return to my people i consider the entire conversation as something best forgotten
0: as do i quark has expressed an interest in renting this space if you're not going to be using it huh
2: he mentioned something about an argillian massage facility well, unfortunately i don't think commander Cisco would approve of such an interesting facility on the promenade
0: i tend to agree But I do think he would approve of a tailor's shop.
2: Do you know what the sad part is, Odo? I'm a very good tailor. All right, everybody. So if you support the show on Patreon.com, you can leave your comments uh, and we'll read them on an upcoming podcast. We'll do that now. We can react to them. It is Christian Pouch says, improbable cause dies cast. I'll just pair them into one because you combine them. Now we're talking. Garrick Odo with the Obsidian Order and the Dominion. Oh my. The exciting mystery starts with Garrick blowing up his own shop and goes from there. One of the highlights of season three and one that shows how much time spent building your characters and universe really pays off. We've been building up people like Tane and Garrick, and we know that the Obsidian Order and the Dominion are capable, uh, wh- and we know what they're capable of. The Ambush and the Changeling reveal at the end are shocking and a good way to build and show how dangerous the Dominion is and let them and let them win, which is uh, something interesting that we had not just talked about. Uh, without actually having the good guys lose. Top five of the season, easily. That's a that's a good point we didn't mention, Darren. By allowing the Romulans and Cardassians to take the lead, you can have the show lose without being crippling to the Federation, um, which is a nice touch. It,
0: it is indeed. And I mean, the show's not exactly subtle in that. There's a moment where Cisco gets back and he's talking to Admiral Todman, and Todman's like, wow, this is like Wolf 359 all over again. And it's like Sisko's like, yes, I was just thinking that, except it was probably worse. Um, but it has that sort of like, yeah, you can cripple the Cardassians and the Romulans to build up the Dominion as a threat without having to do something with the Federation. So you can have the threat sort of continuing to build while still showing them to be like villains, because like that's the issue with, say, the Borg. Like the Borg are supposed to be these fantastic villains. But every time they go into battle, they go into battle against the Federation, they go into battle against our heroes. And as a result, they have to lose, which means that every time the Borg appear, you diminish the threat because they can't win. Uh, whereas this is, this is very canny and it's entirely correct there. It's very canny to have the Dominion go against the Cardassians and the Romulans because that allows the Dominion to have a victory and it allows them to sort of have that like sorting algorithm of evil. And they sort of reference Buffy as well. It sort of reminds me of how like if you wanted to show a villain was tough, you'd have them pick on Spike. Um, except this is, this is much, much more successful because like the Cardassians are kind of le- a lot less pathetic than, than Spike at this point in the series, I think. You know,
1: Um, I was just thinking, this is kind of a a non-sequitur, but if we're coming up to a a string of really good, if if bad Deep Space Nine is, is now in our past, more or less.
0: Uh, okay.
1: I would like to pitch a second season, like, middle of the second season lull episode where Odo gets knocked out, wakes up, has amnesia, Finds himself stuck in the form of a woman. Oh I f- boy! I feel like I feel like that's 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 a. Uh, they didn't get enough goofy use out of Odo up to this point. They didn't do the quantum leap
2: version of yeah, Odo.
1: like what? Well, th- th- there's there's never been an episode where he wakes up in like a weird form that he can't get out of, and he forgets that he's himself. That seems like a layup of a bad episode.
0: Well, for is, for is Rene Alberjona still playing the role? Ooh, that's a good question.
1: Yeah, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say it's Renee Arbourgenois in drag is, as a woman. Yeah, that sounds like a <laughs> terrible episode. Let's do. Let's print that.
0: Oh, I'm about to say, I think you may get your wish in a couple of years, just not with that particular cast member. Okay. I'll take what I can get. I like the Clay's literally wished this episode into <laughs> existence. So yeah. listeners who are watching along for the first time, when you hit the episode and you'll know that you hit the episode, it's entirely Clay's fault.
1: <laughs> that episode is a tulpa of my creation.
2: I think it should be like the Quantum Leap thing where Odo thinks he looks like himself, so whenever he looks in the mirror, he sees René Aubergineau, Ooh, but if yeah. you, whenever anyone else, it's it someone else, yeah.
1: Yeah, yep, could have done that. Uh, let's, I'm just oh saying. Oh my god,
0: and would this be like a really bad, this would be around this time in the series, so you'd still have like Horndog Bashir as a supporting character. Right?
1: Yes. Oh, Bashir starts hitting on Lady Odo, come on. Now I know this we're we're basically the Deep Space Nine writers room at this point. You'll um
2: you'll also work in my favorite early season trope of Odo. Odo gets knocked unconscious quite a bit for some reason in the early <laughs> seasons, and it doesn't seem like he's the character who should be able to be knocked unconscious, but he is. Um Let's see. Stephen Cobb says the die is cast. Awesome episode. The interrogation scene with Garrick and Odo was well done. Different camera angles, Garrick's own dislike of the job, Odo's disturbing makeup. That said, I found that there were no consequences for Garrick torturing Odo and that stretched believability, even more so that Odo invites him to breakfast. Some sort of personal Odo epilogue about not trusting Garrick again, or some sign that things are not all okay between them would have been nice. Instead, it's treated like something they did when they had too many mimosas on a rainy night. And the next (laughs) morning agreed not to talk about what they had done together. (laughs) I, I mean, I disagree. I think that the writing supports why they are friendly with each other because they recognize that they are the same. Um, and that Odo, Odo knows that Garrick was doing it just for his job, which is kind of how Odo sees himself doing his job. It's not personal. It's just about getting the job done.
0: It should also be noted that, like, I mean, it's been suggested uh, in Necessary Evil before, and the show will come back to it again. Odo himself has done some very, very questionable things in his own past in pursuit of what he thought was justice. So I suspect that if any member of the cast was going to have moral flexibility towards Garrick, with the possible exception of Bashir, uh, who would probably just bring him chocolates and eat his isol- isol- isolinear rod uh, if this happened. Um, I feel like, yeah, Odo is probably the character who would be most understanding of Garrick in that situation.
1: But at a certain point, Odo realizes that he's Odo, but he's still stuck in the form of a woman. But now he's now he's conflicted because since he's been a woman, Kira has really opened up to this new woman on the, on, on Deep Space Nine. So now he has to decide whether or not to tell her that he's actually Odo. You know what I'm saying?
0: <laughs> has he, through an awkward set of circumstances, begun a relationship with Jake Cisco and has to have really awkward interactions with yeah. Ben Cisco? You read Sisko's my mind. Like, I can't. I can't wait to meet. Uh, you know, sort of get Jake's new, yep. new girlfriend. No, I was going to say that.
1: A, yeah, you read my yeah, mind. She's
0: a she's a bit more older and more refined than the Dabo girl. And Odo's like, "Whoa, this is gonna be awkward." I
1: feel like we just figured out what we're gonna do for the next time that we have to spitball a Star Trek episode on one of those uh, AMA episodes or whatever.
2: I mean, you'll have to tie in the fact that you know Cisco will accuse Lady Odo and saying like, "Hey, only one person gets to lay erotically with my son, and that's me." Um, and so we, we can close, <laughs> we can close that kind of uh, storyline up because I think that's just left out there dangling. Joint, mm-hmm. Joint Mango says, and
1: and and. O'Brien is just disgusted by all of it. (laughs) He's the ever man.
0: O'Brien is very glad that this is not happening to him. Yes.
2: Joint Mango says, Scarecrowdo scene is very upsetting. Remember Lorca in the pain chamber? That was not upsetting. Star Trek Discovery writers did not watch the Dice cast. Uh, Let's see here. Chad Wiley says the Dice cast, Now this is how you develop an adversary. The episode's reference to Wolf 359 is pretty apt. Just like that episode established how unprepared the Federation was to deal with the Borg, this one establishes just how unprepared anybody is to deal with the Dominion. Although I doubt it was planned this way, the episode does effectively answer the question of why the Founders have been absent for most of the season. They've been plotting and executing the destruction of the Romulan and Cardassian intelligence agencies. The scene where the trap is sprung and everyone on the bridge just stands there in shock is pure gold. As if that weren't enough, we get more great interactions between Odo and Garrick, culminating in that incredibly uncomfortable torture scene. The close-ups and the fantastic performances from Robinson and Abidjanois are brilliant and really convey the desperation and anguish that both characters are going through. I love that this episode shows a completely different, vulnerable side of Garrick. Up to this point in the show, Garrick is given the impression of having the upper hand in every situation, but here we get to see him realizing that he's not the man he used to be, as much as he wants to be, he can't be that man again. The whole two-parter is just top-notch, A-plus all around. Uh, so,
1: like, calling ah. it Tootsie, but with Odo, I think is giving it too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of what we're going for here
0: that's that's Toto. Um, But yeah, back, back to the, the comment there I actually think it's a very very good point um, about the idea of like the, what the Dominion have been up to I like the idea of Cisco being like so we spent like the past se- half a season preparing for the Dominion to arrive what have you guys been doing and the female change is like we do have a life outside of you Ben
2: <laughs> I don't need to call you every time I leave work there's, there's a little bit of limits <laughs> on what I need to do Kyle Barrett says the Dice cast, The action, political intrigue, and story ramifications are all great, but it's the character work of Garrick and Odo that's the greatest success of the episode. Over the two-parter, the parallels between Odo and Garrick have been fascinating to explore, coming to a head in the interrogation scene, probably the best scene of the show to date. Garrick realizing he can't go back and be one with his people again, just as Odo admits that secretly that's all he wants to do. And then later, with Odo and Garrick both rejecting to join their respective sides of the war, two outcasts saved by the people they can call friends, before heading back to that beautiful western-style community among the stars that they call home. It almost brings a tear to the eye. Probably the best episode of the show so far. And then lastly, Neil Brennan, who I mentioned before is the uh, first-time viewer of this one, one of the only ones that I know that's never seen it uh, before, it's out of clay. The die is cast, it's all caps, it says, I am so here for this shit, bring it the fuck on. Uh, That's it. Guys, thank you very much for leaving your comments,
1: the dice cast. Keep that comment in your pocket for when our episode of Deep Space Nine airs, because it's gonna come back out. <laughs>
2: um, I think that's it. Let's give our own personal ratings. Uh to Clay, do you want to go first this time?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um I would say again, uh looking at them separately, I would probably give this one a four. But as like a complete story, I think it's a five hundred percent. I mean both of these two episodes together are really great Um, I think They each have this the the, the strength their strengths are more or less the same thing running through both of them I mean the garrick and odo are just really great together Um, And yeah, it's it's they're exciting they're Good character work, and kind of to circle back to what you were talking about at the beginning about the epic stuff. Um, they recognize that epic stories only work when the stakes are sm- the real stakes are smaller and more personal, and they do that really well here. Uh, like the reason Transformers movies don't work is they literally destroy multiple cities and mass. For two hours, but nobody gives a shit because st- the people, the characters, don't mean anything. The, the stuff they're going through doesn't matter. Whereas you've got something like Return of the Jedi, where you've got a massive invasion going on, with the Death Star, and blah, blah blah blah, and but what's really working there is the small story being told inside the Emperor's you know chambers and all that kind of stuff, and. They recognize that and they really, you know, use it to their advantage and they pay off and they resolve the character stuff and the large epic stuff is there to boost it up and it's there to, you know, keep the door open for stuff that comes later and and is not forced into uh, into resolution. I think it's just it's a really um, Overall, it's a really uh, I, I I hesitate to say mature, but it feels like a mature way of handling this stuff where it's they're, they're letting things breathe in a way that they don't usually do. And I think it's just, I think it's great.
2: Would you, you'd probably still say Best of Both Worlds is your favorite two-parter, I would assume. And you have to consider <sighs> both parts. Or do you think the second yeah. part brings it down?
1: Yeah, I honestly, I don't even, I, I hardly even think about the second part of Best of Both Worlds ever. Yeah. Like it, it, for me, it's like, when you say Best of Both Worlds, you're talking about the first one. Um, I would say this, yeah, this is a, this is probably one of the best two parties I've seen so far in, in either version of, uh, of Star Trek. Yeah. Cause I don't really do them in the original series,
2: but yeah, it's no, uh, it's no menagerie from TOS, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if they had just cut uh, scenes from Emissary into this for half the run length, I think it might've competed with that episode, but.
1: Well, the, you know, it's, I, it's, I think what makes it work too is like that they, they neither one of the episodes is like front loaded you know like that they they it's quality throughout i mean there there are some things in each of each of them that maybe could be a little bit dialed in a little bit more like you know you get that subplot in the second one and you know some of the stuff in the first one the the peripheral stuff although not as much yeah I um, feel
2: improbable because is a more lean script than this yeah 100 percent 100 percent Uh, Oh, sorry.
1: Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna—I was just gonna say, but like you know, across the—it's the first one that I've watched. I feel like where they are, they—they're very satisfying as a two-parter. Like I don't feel let down by the second part at all, which is so far rare.
2: Yes, unique in Star Trek history. Darren, what are you gonna give this one?
0: I'd give it four joint fist punches out of five uh, because I do love that Garrick homage where he ambushes the Romulan outside uh, the cell. With a patented like Kirk Smackdown, join your <laughs> fists together and just whack them into a guy, and it will all work out. The
1: yeah, point. it's it's always either like a two-handed like double axe handle thing, or it's like an open palm strike, which I yeah. think Odo does to Garrick
2: is the open <laughs> yeah. palm. Oh strike. yeah,
0: more persuasive land uh, yeah. language. Yes, um, but yeah, no, I I agree with a lot of of what we said here. But I think, um, and to go back to what they were saying there about why it works so well as a two-parter. Like traditionally, two-parters, if you look at them as like single stories, the way that they're built is they're built around the cliffhanger as the pivot point. So it means that like episode one is building to the point of like maximum escalation. It's the shot of Picard on the Borg ship and Riker saying fire. Like there's nothing you can do that will top that because that's designed to get you coming back watching the next week. And the same thing with, say, Redemption, where it's Worf leaving the ship suddenly or even like descent, where it's like, oh my god, they've been captured by the Borg, and Data's evil twin is leading them. That sort of stuff. Whereas what I think works really well about this two-part and what makes it so unique is that, like, we, we when we talked about improbable cause, we talked about how like low-key the the cliffhanger was or the finale was. It's literally just like, hey, Garrick shakes a dude's hand uh, and cut. But it, it works because they're two different episodes doing two different things, so it's. Daya's cast doesn't have to build from the point of maximum escalation of improbable cause. It's free to be its own thing while still being like the same thing. It's a very delicate balance that the episode manages to sort of like, work. And I, I think that, yeah, uh, the Daya's cast is not as strong as improbable cause. You're right when you say it's a lot looser. Um, in particular, that subplot involving the Defiant. Uh, because, I, I mean, what, what would happen if the Jem'Hadar found them there while the cloak wasn't working? Can you do the audio equivalent of a push in on my face when I say we'll have to fight our way out, <laughs> Yes. Uh, or whatever that is? But yeah, it. On the other hand, it has like that wonderful character scene between Garrick and Odo, uh, which means that like when it gets to the big bombasty stuff blow up at the climax, which features like a wonderful score from Dennis McCarthy. Like I think it's one of the few times, the first times that like the Star Trek franchise under Rick Berman has been allowed to have a distinctive sort of sound to it, where it has this sort of like operatic sort of space battle. Sort of stuff happening in the background that doesn't feel impersonal and clay's entirely right that the reason why these epics work is because we're invested in the characters and both improbable calls the Die is cast understand that both individually as episodes uh, and also as like an overarching two-parter so i really 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 love this two-parter uh, it wouldn't be my favorite star trek two-parter it probably wouldn't even be my favorite deep Space nine star trek two-parter but it will be is in your... the conversation
1: is your favorite one the one where they go back in time and meet Mark Twain?
0: <laughs> well I, I I didn't want and he's played by Deep Throat from the X Files, um yep. as well. Uh how do you how'd you know that, Clay? Damn it. It's like you could read my mind. Um So obvious
2: sometimes.
1: I have I have really gigantic ears that go up the side of my head.
2: <laughs> I think that um uh, for me, it's as a two-parter, it's a five. I think the dice cast is the weaker of the two episodes. So I'm going to give it a four, but it's a four that I really enjoy. I, the epicness is what makes it enjoyable for me. It's the uh, the ground-shaking changes that the series is undergoing. It actually brings back the Dominion. Um, it's a perfect little Star Trek encapsulation, and I think you guys are right about just how they mix things up to make it not seem like it's a standard Star Trek two-parter. Um, I really enjoy it. Anyway, that's about it. I give improbable cost a five and this one a four. Guys, thank you very much for supporting the show. Thank you for listening. If you're on patreon.com slash the Penske file, you can support the show there. You get extra podcasts. We talked about Watchmen the other day. We talked about Robocops are all up there. <laughs> We've talked about our AMA things. You guys can go there, support Don't the Don't forget,
1: show. um, oh, I guess that's not a Patreon. I was going to say, uh, shit. What the What's the name of the frigging Denzel Washington movie we just watched?
0: The Equalizer. Oh, no, nope. we
1: watched A Heart Condition. Pelican Brief? Oh. <laughs> hard Condition. There <laughs> we go. Yeah, it's his, Hard Condition? It's his, What's Hard Condition? It's his lowest well, rated uh, film. You should you should listen to the podcast and find out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we did that. That's amazing.
2: And as Clay brings up, we have the Real Ripe and Real Rotten show. And the next one, it looks like it's going to be Edgar Wright. Clay is the next person that the patrons have voted that we talk about. So it's going to be Scott versus the world. What is that? Ugh. Scott, Ed, Pilgrim Scott Pilgrim, Scott Pilgrim, Scott Pilgrim, and what's his highest one? His highest one is um, probably. Wait, Scott like, Pilgrim
0: is his lowest rank.
1: Yes, Edgar Wright. Ed, that makes that makes sense. Edgar. I'm gonna say it's probably it's got to be like Hot Fuzz, Hot Fuzz, Baby Driver. What? Wow! Baby, Baby Driver uh, is high. Yeah. This is the first one where I'm gonna actively be negative because I don't like either of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a uh, you know, kind of, and know, rotten show. It's I, I'm I'm really disappointed because being able to do a non Simon Pegg Edgar Wright movie and a Simon Peg Edgar Wright movie would have really helped me solidify my case <laughs> that I think Simon Pegg is the secret weapon in his in their relationship because I don't think that he writes very good movies without Simon Pegg. So I won't have I won't be able to to compare and contrast there
2: so unless you guys go crazy with the voting it looks like that the next closest is dennis villanueve uh he's in second place but he's a couple votes behind so we'll see that's interesting let's see that's about it guys thank you very much you can go to all the facebook social media twitter blah 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 discord channels a good place to go patreon.com all that stuff thank you very much for listening thank you for supporting the show Clay, thanks for coming on
1: yeah thanks for having me darren thank you very much for coming on Thank you very much. And
2: guys, that's about it. We'll be back with Explorers, which is the next episode after this. Hope you enjoyed. We'll see you next time.